Hello everyone, I'm Duncan Rayburn and welcome to my Unorthodoxy podcast and to a new series. I'm sure you've noticed that 2020 has been an insane year. Life is tough normally, but in addition to the usual existential crises all of us face, we've had the added stress of an actual global pandemic. It's normally difficult to gain any sense of reflective distance or reflective awareness, but my sense is that the need for reflective distance becomes especially important in times of crisis. So to gain back some perspective, some sense of a larger picture than the one most of us are faced with needs to be found, and for this reason, I thought it would be good for us to explore the philosophical and theological question of God's providence. By the way, I am drawing from a vast range of sources for this series. I will post said sources in the show description. So by exploring the question of providence, I want to explore various other questions along the way about reality and creation and God's will and why suffering and evil happen and also the vitally important question of what it means to be abandoned to divine providence. My aim is really to offer encouragement and hope. Since it is a statistical inevitability that all of us will at one or another time go through immense difficulties, and especially since crises and difficulties tend to contain a destructive element, I figured it would be good to attempt something more constructive, perhaps even reconstructive. I have not had an easy year myself for reasons that I'm not going to go into here And this means that whatever I discuss here is not merely an intellectual exercise for me. In any case, the best theology is the kind that resonates with the soulful depths of human experience. And I'm certainly guilty of not always managing to get at these depths on this podcast, even where this has been my intention. So let's try to get deep, shall we? We're going to start in the beginning with the very first line of the first book of the great book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To understand divine providence, we have to begin with creation itself. This beginning is difficult to imagine, and yet the Genesis poem, and it is, mind you, a poem, not a scientific analysis, the poem explicitly asks us to imagine it. This is a reasonable thing, in fact, since without imagination it may even be impossible to believe. Faith and imagination always go together. What perhaps makes it difficult to imagine, however, is that our experience of beginnings is always enworlded, always wrapped up in a context that we are already, in some sense, familiar with. Take our own beginning as a point of departure. None of us can even remember our own birth and our own earliest moments of life in the big wide world. The first memories any of us has is of life already in the midst of things, already tangled up in the muck and mayhem of everyday existence. We don't remember our own births, and the same is true in the sense for every beginning. In part, this is what makes the famous chicken and egg conundrum intellectually confounding. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, We cannot imagine the chicken without the egg or the egg without the chicken. But the Genesis poem requires that we imagine this real beginning, this moment of origin before the chicken and the egg in a way, before the existence of moments. 
It's a kind of timeless moment without chronology and spatiality, and it is in imagining it that we can begin to grasp something of the nature of God's providence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is first, as the pre- and supra-existent being beyond the being of creation. And this God makes, out of nothing and nowhere, the heavens and the earth, which is to say simply that God makes everything. God, as pure transcendent existence, is the originator of everything that has imminent existence, chickens and eggs included. This brings us to the doctrine in classical theology of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Some imagination is required of us to consider this doctrine because as we intuitively understand, nothing comes from nothing. But intuition will only get us so far, and so this doctrine begs us to step beyond any natural, literal-mindedness that we may have. It asks that we step into a mystery. True mystery, mind you, is not to be found in the unknown and the unknowable, but in the endlessly knowable, in what exhausts our capacities for knowing. And creation ex nihilo is one example of a true mystery. While there is no one proof text in the Bible of the idea of creation ex nihilo, much to the annoyance of literalist theologians, both Jewish rabbinic and early Christian thinkers concluded that creation out of nothing is part of a genuinely biblical metaphysical theology. It can be discerned from the overall pattern of the scriptures. Of course, in 2 Maccabees 7 verse 28 and in the Wisdom of Solomon 11 verse 17, we find a close indication of this idea, the idea that God does not create things out of already existing things. But the idea of creation ex nihilo doesn't require strict proof texting to be plausible. And we should not worry if scholars disagree with this. Our modern scholars do what scholars do. They debate and contest things in an attempt to assert mastery over what they cannot possibly fully comprehend. It so happens that the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is just one of those things that they have frequently debated and contested. Some scholars argue that God does not create things out of nothing, which is another way of saying that God did not create everything. Some scholars argue that, in some sense, God himself is a being co-created by the cosmos, um, that God is somehow bound up in a process that encompasses the universe itself. But those scholars are clearly wrong, and I don't care to pay any attention to their wrong-headedness here. What is perhaps too clear and obvious for such scholars to see from biblical revelation is this. All things have their being because of God. To claim otherwise is simply to claim that God is not God, but merely a kind of divine being with an origin in some other, even higher being who really is God. Well, a biblical theology claims that God really is God, the source of all that has being and movement. As St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans 11 verse 36, For from him and through him and for him are all things. The thing is, this idea that God creates out of nothing is not just a cosmological or metaphysical claim. This is something emphasized really nicely by the church father Gregory of Nyssa. It is also an eschatological and ethical claim. 
This is to say, if you will allow me to risk an overstatement, it has vast implications for every dimension of life. It seems impossible to me that anyone could understand divine providence apart from this doctrine. As St. Paul says in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. And as St. John says in the first chapter of his gospel, referring to the second person of the Trinity, all things came into being through the word of God, and without him not one thing came into being. The idea of the Trinity is something we're going to get to in the next episode. But briefly put, it means that there is a self-prescribed difference within the oneness of God, and it is out of this internal introverted difference within God that the extroverted differences within creation become manifest, tangible realities. Isn't that cool? The early church fathers stressed creation ex nihilo for a number of reasons, and we'll look at a few of the main ones here. Hopefully, you will begin to see soon enough that this seemingly abstract idea gives rise to highly practical theological concerns. Good metaphysics and good theology should be practical, I think. The word must inevitably become flesh. So, first, creation ex nihilo is important because it stresses the absolute difference between God and created being. This is something we're going to get back to in the third episode in this series. This difference is monumental. In a sense, it is insurmountable. God is genuinely transcendent, supra-transcendent, really. God is more like nothing than like anything else in creation, and yet he transcends nothing and nothingness too. He transcends personality too, not by being impersonal, as an Aristotelian or Stoic might claim, but by being even more personal than the most personal thing you can know or imagine. Anything that has personality possesses it in smaller measure than God does. So, the difference between God and creation is not like the difference between one created being and another. If I say, for example, that a person is very different from a stone, I would be right even by articulating this very banal fact. And yet, I would be articulating differences that exist within the realm of the created order. That is, differences between beings. But... The difference between God and the universe is the difference between one kind of existence and another kind of existence. This is important since it implies that God's creation of the universe belongs to a different causal order than that of what happens within the universe itself. Also, this distinction between God and the universe has implications for how we think about God. From what I can tell, most debates between, say, new atheists and creationists are hinged on a stupid conception of God as different in degree, but not in kind, from created beings. There is a long theological history to this, which we definitely don't have to go into now. For our purposes, let's just note that the atheists and process theologians alike in general assume that God is a being and not being itself. I would dare say even creationists often assume the same thing. They get caught up in arguing for or against the designedness of the cosmos on the basis of a profoundly silly theological and philosophical mistake. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo clarifies this. God is not a God 
like Zeus or Marduk or Vishnu. He is not a being at all. Incidentally, and rather provocatively, the early Christians were referred to by those bound to Roman and Greek customs as atheists, and this was because of their rejection of the gods. In a sense, Christianity is really a better kind of atheism since it rejects any possibility of reducing transcendence to some kind of imminent and idolatrous form. If you want to be a really good atheist, you have to be a classical theist first. A second reason for the importance of the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is that it stresses God's creativity and creative action as genuinely free. One way of looking at this is to understand that God is not constrained by any particular material, the way that, say, an artist would be. Everything originates in his mind as something he knows even before it takes on embodiment and becomes a fact. In a sense, God knows creation into being. This knowledge is not just abstract philosophical reasoning, but is a deep and thorough personal, perhaps even erotic knowledge. Still, another way to understand God's freedom is to understand that he does not have to create anything at all, but rather he wants to create. He desires beings to be. He has no deep existential need for created being. Rather, he creates out of sheer gratuitous love and joy and creative exuberance. He makes everything for the hell of it, really, including us. And this means that creation is a gift. What is created is given. To have being is to be given being. And this means that being is a gift. A gift, of course, implies an interpersonal relationship with a giver. If there is no giver, the notion of a gift becomes highly questionable. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo becomes another way of talking about the delightfully superfluous luminance and radiance of being. I'm sure you can imagine already what it would mean to dwell in this conception of being, to be perceptive to your own being and to the world around you as if it did not have to be. This, by the way, is arguably the chief impetus behind the writings of G.K. Chesterton, a man who would stumble into his office in the morning and gasp at the astonishing surprise that the office was there and that he was there in it, and that people around him were there with him. Creation is a gift, something that did not have to be given but has been given to us by God. This already implies another reason for the importance of creation ex nihilo as a doctrine. It implies that creation is good. In the creation poem in Genesis, God goes about creating all things, and then he refers to them as good, 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 and so on, and in the case of the creation of humankind, as very good. What God makes is automatically good. It's good that things are. This idea is in stark contrast to pagan and certain Gnostic streams of thought that were contemporary with early Christianity. These held that material reality was imperfect or even sometimes just plain evil. This dodgy thinking seeps in everywhere into the modern mind, and perhaps it is justified by something like a particular view of the so-called fall of man. But the fact that God calls creation good is not a matter of some distant past. It is a matter of now, too. Matter matters. Matter is good. Your body is good. Your materiality is good. Your material existence 
is good. This may be difficult to accept as being part of the Christian tradition since we do have a bit of a history of having Gnosticism seep into our spiritual consciousness. But Christianity has always been highly embodied. It's been a highly materialistic faith, or to use a more accurate word, a deeply sacramental faith. In general, my problem with materialists is that they are not materialistic enough. Something implied by the idea of creation as the result of God's free act, also implied by creation's perpetual, albeit currently damaged, goodness, is the idea that creation is ongoing. Especially in the aftermath of the so-called Enlightenment, many have come to think of creation in somewhat deist terms. The idea many people walk around with even today is that long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, God created the heavens and earth. God created things in the beginning, right? That's what it means, doesn't it? Well, not really. St. Augustine, in his commentary on Genesis, says that this is not what that verse means. In fact, in that book, Augustine asks the question of whether God created the earth in six literal days and answers the question with no. Genesis 1 verse 1 says that God makes everything at once. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God being God does not have to stagger the process of creation, and the fact that Genesis begins with this all-at-onceness and then proceeds to lay out the structure of being in a particular way suggests a poetic system that helps our minds to conceive of the meaning of creation, rather than just its mechanical production. But there is more to this too. To say that God creates everything at once is to say that creation is still ongoing. The beginning, for Augustine, is a principle of God's immediate presence to created being, more than strictly being a statement about some kind of temporal starting point. Yes, of course, at some point, time and space had to be created. Yes, time and space are created beings too. But, as Augustine sees it, and as the tradition sees it, God's creative act is happening now, and now, and now, ad infinitum. I think it's good to pause for a moment and consider this. You are being brought into existence by God right now, at this very moment. Your being and the being of everything around you is being created at every instant. In the beginning is now. You over there, me over here, these words you're hearing, the devices you're using to hear these words, are all sustained in this sheer and immediate and perpetual beginning. Now, now, and now. While you are busying yourself with making a slice of toast to snack on, or going for a jog around the block, or nattering on about the latest news, your varying acts, along with the being of everything around you, are being created and sustained by God. That is, by His loving presence. This is how the theologian Robert Ferrar Capon talks about the Augustinian reading of Genesis in his marvelous book, Genesis the movie. He writes, Augustine is talking about God's creating not as a once upon a time production, but as an act that has always been going on, an act that creates an abiding intimacy with God. And that act has been in progress forever in the exchanges between the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And at every moment of the world's being, anything said in the Trinity's hotbed of love stands fast in both eternity and time. Our divine friends are continually creating us. 
Maybe this is part of what makes it difficult to conceive of a beginning. We're talking about a beginning that transcends the bounds of finite material reality. Nevertheless, the idea here is that the beginning that transcends the bounds of finite material reality is God. All things God made and makes are good because they share in His goodness, because they originate in His mind full of love. God is the ontological ground of the goodness of creation. So when we talk about God causing things to be, we are not merely offering a mechanical explanation in the vein of a kind of heretical creationist deism. We are not, like Aristotle saying, God merely causes things to exist. We are talking about creation. That is a deliberate, decisive act. We are offering a clarification, just for starters, of why being is meaningful, why being is true and intelligible, and why being is good. We are reminding ourselves that no matter what happens in the created order, and especially when what happens within the created order violates the original intention of the Maker, God remains entirely innocent, entirely untainted, entirely and eternally good. And we are reminding ourselves too of the real distinction between the uncreated, self-subsistent divinity, reality itself, and created, dependent being, which depends on God for its reality. In the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, we start with the ontological priority of goodness itself. God is goodness itself. Goodness is therefore not something arbitrarily imposed from the outside according to emotional whims and random naming, but is something built into existence itself. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, existence itself is good. Reality and goodness are convertible. I do understand that we may feel an impulse at this point to jump ahead and think about all the difficult things that we have to deal with as existing beings, as vulnerable to sin and evil and suffering. We may find ourselves pointing out so many things in ourselves, in our experiences, in the world, and in the experiences of others that are clearly out of order and out of whack, outright violating the good. The temptation to do this runs very deep, since often life is unbearably hard and imperfection haunts us at every turn. When we do suffer, and It is always a question of when and not if. We are likely to wish things were not the way they are, and even in extreme cases, to wish for non-being itself. I understand how easily existential despair can take root, and I know that many of you understand this too well. But this relates, I would say, to the emotional problems that arise out of suffering, and, and what I want to do without totally ignoring those very important emotional problems, is to strike at something deeper. Intellectually speaking, and perhaps even emotionally speaking, starting with pain and suffering and evil as points of departure, as primary realities rather than as secondary realities, would be to begin at the wrong end. In fact, even pointing out what is wrong first requires a kind of ontological priority of the good. After all, we have to have some sense of what is right before we can even be clear on what is wrong, just as we need some sense of what order looks like before we would be capable of noticing what disorder looks like. To have some sense that sin and suffering and evil should not happen, we need to, and in fact we do tend to, 
have some sense of what should happen. Without goodness as something built into being itself, in fact, we would have no real way to establish right and wrong at all, apart from some arbitrarily constructed standard based on preference or whim. This is something modern emotivist or expressivist ethics proves. The modern world has in many ways ended up resorting to arbitrary ethics precisely because it has, in one way or another, declared God dead and buried and irrelevant. Surprisingly, this has not led, as some tend to think, to an amoral or merely immoral world, but has led to an intensely moralistic one. In fact, ours is an age of almost insane moralism, where even the tiniest actions and smallest linguistic gestures can be prescribed and policed in the real world and on social media and, I would call it, anti-social media. Ethics is now almost entirely bureaucratized. Even certain formerly immoral behaviors have become codified with an institutionalized consciousness. In some ways, as Chesterton says so well, we live in a world where virtues have split apart and are wandering about the world alone and unattached. Abandoning the ground of being as goodness itself has created immense rigidity in ethics and rulemaking. In other words, we live in an age of ethics without goodness, a kind of decaffeinated ethics, which soon becomes tyrannical and unreasonable without allowing for a generous flexibility that wisdom itself would be able to work with. Yet, even this distorted view of the good points to something. We all possess a deep-seated, indestructible sense that there really is a right way for things to be, even though we may often be wrong about what the right way is for things to be. The new atheists, among others, can be found arguing against the existence of God on moralistic grounds without realizing that this is an act of attacking the very foundation that is holding them up. To cut a very long story short, though, I would say that even before we ask the question of why we have suffering or evil, as atheists and believers do alike, or what it means to abandon ourselves to divine providence as believers do, or even why we would want to abandon ourselves to divine providence, the great tradition reminds us that God made the heavens and the earth, and that he is still making the heavens and the earth, and he is making us too, even now. I agree that things go wrong, and we do suffer terribly because of evils within and without, because finite existence implies vulnerability. Sometimes the sheer force and magnitude of the terror faced by us is overwhelming enough to make us question whether there really is goodness in being. Yet, the first word is still that God is, that he is good, that he made all things good. And because of this, it is good to be. So this is the first way that God has provided for us, the gift of being itself. In the ordinary liturgies of everyday life, we may manage to attend to this simple truth, and perhaps better, we may decide to become aware of the good gift of existence. We may notice the solidity of the ground beneath us or the taste of a good meal. We may recognize how perfect the yellow of daffodils is or how brilliant the songs and compositions of Sufjan Stevens are or how sublime it is to hold someone we love. Even in loneliness and longing, we recognize the goodness of relationship. We may find ourselves transformed by the surprise of things that work and 
acts of generosity and kindness when we find them. Surprise, not just because things are merely unexpected, but because they reflect the truth of existence itself and because they point beyond this finite world into the heart of God himself. So may you know this wherever you are. May you find yourself awake to the good gift of being, the truth that in this God has already provided. I know I need to be reminded of this too, which is probably why I'm saying all of this in the first place. 